Well, good morning, church. It's great to be here. Great to see all of you. Praise the Lord for another opportunity to worship him together, but also to come to be instructed from his word. I want to invite you to pray with me before we open the Bible and get into our passage this morning. Father, the church is gathered here and we are ready to hear you preach. We wanna be reminded that as we open up your word corporately, that you speak to us from these pages. This is not just another book. We've read perhaps many articles, many books this week, but as we come together, we pray that you would speak to us from the pages of this book. It is authoritative book. You inspired every single word and you chose to communicate yourself through this written word. And so we want to pay attention. And I pray father that we would not miss a beat as we listen attentively. And I pray that you would use me as your tool through which you speak. Help us Lord, I pray to not just be forgetful hearers, but attentive listeners who desire to worship you in the way that we apply your truth. Thank you for stirring up our hearts, our emotions through the songs that we were singing. And now help us to, Lord, sit calmly before your word. Teach us much. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to open back to Colossians. Last Sunday, we spent some time looking at another passage, namely the Great Commission, Matthew 28. And in one way, it kind of serves as a good introduction to what we will be discussing this morning. This morning, we're going to be looking at chapter four. So as you can tell, we are inching closer and closer to the end of this uh, pretty awesome letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. And as you go to chapter four, I want to ask you, um, have you ever been intrigued by a book or a movie or a story um, that you just could not wait to finish? Um, you know, most of us gravitate towards stories where the main characters, they kind of overcome all the odds where they go from place of tragedy to great triumph. Um, those who at one time are hopeless and you're like, they have no way out of this situation. And all of a sudden they find hope. These stories, they captivate us. They, they draw us in. We, in a sense, begin to put ourselves in the shoes of those characters and begin to celebrate with them, knowing where they were and where they're at right now. Consider the story that is written by the gospel of John. John wrote in chapter four, the story of the woman at the well. The story, as you may recall, of a broken woman. Many of you have read this story multiple times. You remember exactly what took place there. A woman with broken relationships, unsuccessful marriages, shattered life. She's full of shame. She's full of guilt. 
There's no real hope. The future does not look bright for this woman. Who would ever want to be around her? And as you, as you read, however, you're intrigued because Jesus shows up. And every time Jesus shows up on the scene, something great happens. And so you, you continue to read. And, and, and sure enough, restoration takes place. Throughout the conversation, Jesus points this woman to himself and says, if you are thirsting for water, I will give you something to drink. And all of a sudden, this woman realizes she trusts Jesus. She finds the Messiah and once hopeless, she's now full of hope. So much so that she goes out back to her town to tell all the folks there, get out of town and go look at this man because I have found someone for whom I've thirsted my entire life. Maybe you remember reading the gospel of John or John chapter four for the very first time. You know, the story of a woman is a story of every single person here in this room. The scripture is clear that we are all born spiritually lost. Without hope, we are poor, but Jesus gives us new life. Just look with me as a way of review to Colossians. Colossians chapter one. And look what Paul writes in Colossians. And he reminds this church, verse 13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. This is where you were before. And, and Jesus rescued us and transferred us into his own kingdom in whom in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In verse 21, he says, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind, engaged in evil deeds, this is who you were as part of those who belong to the kingdom of darkness, alienated, hated God. You were engaged in evil deeds, but he reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, holy, blameless and beyond reproach. If you were to go to the next chapter, chapter two, verse 13 Paul writes and says, when you were dead again in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgression, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which were hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. But church, how often do we stop to consider and stand in awe of what took place in our lives. You know, oftentimes we, we don't consider the implication or the impact that the gospel has on us. We just want to do things. We just want to work. We, we just, yes, okay, I'm in the kingdom. So what? I think we need to ponder. We need to stop almost daily and realize and be in awe of the work of Christ in our lives. You know, Colossians is a letter about Christ and his work of changing people. He has dealt thoroughly with the redemption of believers in the first three chapters, but as he moves forward to chapter four in, in concluding this particular letter, he encourages the readers now to consider their own responsibility to take this good news of the gospel and deliver it to, as we were singing, to captives and to bring good news to them. How far? To every corner of the earth. 
he encourages us to join Paul in his own ministry. I want you to see this before we read chapter four, two through six. I want you to go back to chapter one and I want to begin reading with 424 or 124. And this is Paul's ministry. Paul just prayed for the church. He reminded them who Christ is and what he has done for them. And look what he says in verse 24 of chapter one. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions of this church. I was made a minister according to the stewardship of God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Therefore, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And then go to 4.2. And this is our text for this morning. Devote yourselves to prayer. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well. That God will open to us a door for the word. So that we may speak forth the mysteries of Christ. For which I also have been imprisoned. That I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. Making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. As we consider this passage, I want us to keep this kind of overarching theme in our minds, or if you're taking notes, write this down. I've entitled this, this passage, this sermon, taking the message to the outsiders. And here's the theme, taking the gospel message to the outsiders requires consistent prayer, wise living, and gracious speaking. Consistent prayer, wise living, and gracious speaking. And what's on Paul's mind is the ministry. What he's trying to communicate to the church is, as I am faithful with the gospel to deliver the gospel to you, verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 28, we proclaim him admonishing every man in order that we may present every man complete in Christ. I want you guys to join in on this ministry. And as you've been transformed and rescued and reconciled and forgiven, I want you to take the gospel and I want you to go forth. I want you to spread it. And if we're going to be serious about spreading the gospel, we must consider three areas of our lives. And that is this. We must consider the way we pray we must consider the way we live and we must consider the way we speak. The way we pray, the way we live, and then the way we speak. So let us consider the first point. Consider the way you pray. Devote yourselves to prayer, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 2. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. The very first thing that Paul wants us to do is Paul wants us to pray with focus on our own hearts. Pray with focus on our own hearts. After spending three chapters giving instruction to Christian living, Paul offers this reminder of the importance of prayer. Right? In, in chapter one, 
If you look at chapter one, verse nine, Paul says that having heard of your faith in the Lord, Paul prays that they would grow in their understanding of the gospel to better comprehend the implications of their faith in this glorious gospel, which would then in turn cause them to what? Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, verse 10, in order that you may please him in all respects and so that you may bear good fruit. And now after giving them this gospel truths and and how it affects every single sphere of their life in chapter three, he commands them to pray and to focus on Christ as their life. Devote yourselves to pray. Paul wants the church first and foremost to pray for self, to pray for themselves. And it's interesting that to pray for self is not unbiblical. We have to be praying for ourselves before we pray for others. Interesting, if you were to observe uh, uh, John 17, for instance, Christ's priestly prayer, he spends first portion of the prayer praying for himself, praying for his own preparation. And then he prays for his disciples who will then take on the message of the gospel and will propagate it all over the world. And so he wants the church to pray, focusing on the state of their own hearts first and foremost. More specifically, Paul wants the church to pray first consistently. He says, devote yourselves to pray. Be be devoted to, be devoted to, speaks of an activity that one busily engages in. Uh, It's a call for church, for all of us to practice prayer, to be praying continually. Here, here, Uh, The point Paul is making has to do less with nonstop prayer, with prayer being nonstop, as much as prayer being regular. He's not indicating, nor does he want us to pray 100% of the time because this is unreal. Uh, You can't be doing that. What he wants us to do is like any activity that you would be engaged in regularly to see prayer as that opportunity to come to and to pray, to speak with the Lord. It's like a regular meal to which you come back in order to be nourished. And so he wants us to pray consistently. Second, he wants us to pray with awareness. He says, keep alert in it. When you come to pray consistently, regularly, stay alert, be alert, be watchful. You know, generally many commentators, they observe that this simply means that you should be engaged in prayer and, and as you engage in prayer, you stay awake. You, you pay attention. You're mentally alert. That means when you're falling asleep, it's really difficult to pray. Kind of like what Jesus told his disciples, remember, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Walked and said, hey, stay up and pray. Because as soon as you fall asleep, you can't be praying. But I think here, Paul is getting at something more pressing when he commands us to keep alert in it. And I think what he means is we need to pray with an awareness of the gospel in our lives. Pray and be alert, be aware of the work of Christ in our lives. Paul's goal in this entire letter has been to explain the fullness of Christ communicated through the gospel of Christ. Look at chapter one, verse 19. 
Chapter 1, verse 19, Paul says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Now flip over to chapter three and begin reading verse one. Therefore, he says, if this is true of us, if this is true of you, therefore, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, be alert, be aware, set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So just as Paul transitions to greetings before here in, in chapter four, he presses the church to be constantly aware of God's work, what he has accomplished, the effects of the gospel in their life as they pray. And church, how important is this command for us? We need to pray to further understand what Christ is to us, to dwell on the aspects of the gospel, to be aware of our sinful tendencies and, and our constant need for Christ that we're only accepted in God's beloved because we have been forgiven by him. We need to bathe our mind in the gospel as we pray in order to continually walk by faith. When you just look up the verses in the New Testament that talks about us being alert, alertness, that alertness in, in most passages is tied to our faith. For instance, consider what he wrote to Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul says, be on the alert, stand firm in faith, be, pay attention, pay attention, be on the alert, stay firm in faith. Or look what Peter wrote to the persecuted Christians in first Peter five, very famous verse. We all know it probably by heart eight through nine. It says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Exactly the same thing. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith. Be on the alert because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour. He's not talking about physical death. He's not talking about physical murder. But both of these apostles, they emphasize the importance of being alert of the gospel work and to continue to exercise faith so that we do not slip away into thinking unbiblically, so that we do not slip away and, and start acting in a legalistic way. Consider and refresh your mind. Be alert of what the Lord is doing. And in addition to what he has, what he has done and is doing, verse four says of chapter three, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory as you consider the effects of the gospel on, in your hearts right now, you are to also pray and be alert, be ready for his coming. Because when he shows up, you will be revealed with him in glory. It's so important, brothers and sisters, to consider what it is that we have received through the gospel and dwell on that regularly. So he wants us to pray consistently, to pray watchfully, 
to pray with awareness. And then he goes on and he says, with an attitude of thanksgiving, pray with thankfulness. Think about this. Think about the order. As you consider the effects of the gospel in your hearts, doesn't it stimulate you to be thankful? Isn't that the, the outflow? When you realize that, listen, I haven't done a single thing in order to be where I am. In order to, to come to a place where I possess the greatest inheritance ever. That all of my sins are wiped clean. I didn't do anything. I just responded in faith and faith is a gift from God as well. And then you realize that I'm a child of God. I've been adopted into his family. Wouldn't that stimulate your heart to be thankful? I'm sure it would. This verse is a, is a summation of everything that, that Paul has written up to this point in this chapter, chapter three, Paul is telling the church, do this in light of everything that God has done for us. Chapters one and two, do it. Continue in pray. Why? Why should we continue in prayer? Because if we're going to do everything that, that we've covered up to this point in Colossians, we're going to need divine enabling. We can't do this on our own. We need God's grace to help us to do what we are called to do in chapter three. And as you, you pray to be a faithful brother or sister or, or pray to be a submissive wife or a loving husband, be aware of what God is doing in your life through the gospel and be thankful. I mean, consider the, the theme that runs through the entire book, this Thanksgiving theme. In chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says, giving thanks to the Father who qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, he says, walk in Christ and overflow with gratitude. It's what happens with Christians. In, in 3.15, he gives them a direct command, be thankful. In 3.16, he says, sing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 3.17, verses 15, 16, back to back to back, give thanks through Christ to God, the father. We are reminded to be thankful for the work that he has done in our lives. And so Paul wants us first to acknowledge the work of the gospel in our hearts, but he doesn't want us to stop there. He doesn't end with, with verse two. He presses on and, and, and he pushes the church to look beyond simply what God accomplished through the gospel in their hearts. And look what he says in verse three, praying at the same time. As you pray and as you meditate on the gospel, as you stay alert and as you give thanks to God, here's what I want you to do. I want you to also pray at the same time for us. And so we're not only praying with focus and focusing on the effects of the gospel in our lives, we pray with focus on the spread of the gospel. Pray with focus on the spread of the gospel. We are reminded here, Paul says in verse three, that God will open for us a door for the word that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which also I have been imprisoned. For which also I have been imprisoned. So here it is, Paul reminds us that he is in a Roman prison. He is there because he preached the gospel and he continues to be adamant about preaching the gospel and spreading the news. But does his imprisonment hinder the preaching of the gospel? Absolutely not. 
His, the fact that he is locked up in prison does not impede the progress of the gospel. He is concerned for the effectiveness of his work. So he says, church, he's writing to this church, please pray for us. Please pray for us. You are going to be instrumental in me preaching the gospel. This is how you're going to help me. Pray for us. There's the connection between these two verses. Think about this. Paul had just commanded these saints to continue in prayer, pray for their hearts to reflect on the work of the gospel, which would then stimulate them to be thankful. And then he gets very specific. He says, pray for my mission. Pray for my mission. Pray for the spread of the gospel. If you've read a gospel primer by Milton Vincent on page 25, he says this. The more I rehearse and exalt in gospel truths, the more there develops within me a corresponding burden for non-Christian to enter into such blessing. Uh, this, is, this is key. Without verse two, you don't get verse three. Without meditating on the gospel and dwelling and staying alert and realizing what Christ has done for you, without having that impact you there's going to be very little effort on our part to see sinners come into the same blessing that we're experiencing now. And so Paul says, pray for gospel opportunities. Pray for gospel opportunities. Here's a fact. Church, here's the fact. Any opportunity to share the gospel is given to us by God. We can't create them on our own. We can't open doors. Salvation from a to Z is all of work of God, everything. We can't do it on our own. We pray for open doors. We pray for God to prepare hearts. I love what D.L. Moody said. He says, I must always speak first to God about lost people before I go to lost people to speak to them about God. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn from Paul and we need to learn from this command to come regularly in prayer and ask for gospel opportunities. I mean, think about this. Think about Paul. Think about who's writing this and who's asking the church to pray for it. Paul. Paul's probably the greatest missionary that ever lived throughout the church history. Paul was great at finding opportunities. We just read, Jan just read at the beginning, Acts 17. He shows up, he studies the culture, Everyone is in uproar. Perfect opportunity. He stands up and he says, uh, listen, I present to you the unknown God whom you actually worship. Great at finding opportunities. But what is he asking the church to pray for? He's realizing that the opportunity that I just had in Acts 17 is an opportunity that was provided to me by God. Paul, the greatest preacher, the greatest missionary, he is praying that God would open up doors. Church, if we want to be effective with the gospel, we must ask God to open doors. And the doors that God opens, those are the doors we want to go through. Open door for the word, an opportunity to preach the gospel. He says that God will open a door for the word. There's a lot to learn from Paul's attitude here. He says that he's in prison. He says, I'm, I'm imprisoned here. 
yet he sees many open doors. Kind of like play on words. I'm locked up, I'm chained. But he's not asking for the opening of prison doors. What he's asking for is for the word to go out and to produce fruit. Look what he says. Paul writes the final letter of his career to Timothy. Second Timothy chapter two, he wrote this in, in verse eight and nine. He's trying to encourage this young brother in faith. And he says, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Paul's done. He's done laboring. He's done witnessing. He's just waiting for the reward. And he says this, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. This is what, what, where this preaching of the word of Christ got me, got me into prison. And instead of being considered the greatest missionary who ever lived, I am considered a criminal. But check this last phrase out. He says, but the word of God is not imprisoned. The word of God is not imprisoned. You can lock people up. You can silence them even. But the word of God is not imprisoned. Paul realizes that and he says, church, as you dwell on the gospel and as you stay alert in it, I want you to pray for gospel opportunities. I want the word to go forth. Here's the point. No one can arrest the progress of the gospel. No one can arrest the progress of the gospel. But how often do we church pray this prayer? You know, I think if you were to, if I was to ask you to stand up and, and kind of interview you right now, I think you'll be up for seeing people saved. I mean, who here doesn't want people to come to Jesus and be saved, right? Everybody wants people to be saved, to come to Christ. But church, are we praying to this end? Are we spending time committing ourselves to, to pray for salvation of sinners? Are you asking the Lord to give you opportunities to preach Christ today? to find a perishing soul and to give you the love of Christ so that you can go out there and you can minister the word to them. Prepare my heart is what we should be praying. Fill it with your love towards the unsaved. I hope you're not only praying this for yourself, but you are praying for our church, praying for grace here. We desire to see people changed and come to worship Jesus with us, but are we praying to this end? We should be praying that God would do this, that he would stir us up and that he would stir up the people there who need gospel and he would open up these doors so that we can go forth. But Paul is not only praying for gospel opportunities, look what he's saying. Pray also for gospel clarity. Verse four, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. That I may make it clear. Again, I just want to remind you, Paul is writing this. These are not my words. These are Paul words. Have you ever read Romans? Have you ever read Romans? Romans has a pretty good presentation of the gospel. If you read Romans, then you're like, if anyone is clear about the gospel, it's this brother, Paul, Apostle Paul. He knows what he's talking about. That, that is a pretty clear presentation of the gospel. Yet, Paul is asking for a gospel clarity. And it's not that so I can clearly articulate 
the truths of the gospel. That is obviously, that's what he means here. But, but more than that, he is praying that his hearers would be able to understand and to respond. When you articulate the truth, you can articulate it clearly. But there, if, if there's no open door for the reception of that word, that is what he's after. Pray for gospel clarity, Paul says, that I may make it speak. It is my duty. Look what he says, verse 4, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. In other words, pray for clarity because I have to speak. It's my duty. I don't have a, an option here. And not just as a missionary, not just as one who is called to be the light, but one who is what? A Christian, one who beheld Christ and one who continues to behold Christ. It is his duty to speak the gospel, to speak the mysteries of Christ. In other words, to, he says, pray that I may explain, that I may have the necessary words to explain the truths hidden in Christ. David Egner, he um, talks about a, one, one incident that he had in teaching prisoners. He had a prison ministry and he gathered around and he wanted to teach prisoners how to pray. And so he took the Lord's prayer as a template and he basically says, I was explaining the opening words, our father telling the man that though they are God's offspring because he created them, they can become God's children only when they place their trust in his son, Jesus Christ. Then God truly becomes their heavenly father. And he says, I, I struggle to get this point across to prisoners. And one of the prisoners, he gets up and he says, let me tell them. And he says, listen up. God made you, okay? That doesn't mean you're going to hell. Or that doesn't mean you're not going to hell. You can only become God's child if he saves you. To get that, you got to trust in Jesus. If you haven't done that, you better do that now. Amen. And he sat down and three prisoners came to Christ. And he reflects on that, David, and he says, I learned a very valuable lesson that day. When we present the gospel, we need to use terms and concepts that are very familiar to audience. That's exactly what Paul did in Acts 17. He used terms, he used concepts, he used ideas, right, that were ingrained in that culture, and he brought Christ. If you read Acts 14, in Acts 14, Paul preaches to a bunch of Jews. He doesn't talk about worship there, idol worship. He doesn't bring any other cultural issues. What he does is he just brings in the Old Testament into this situation. He knows how to get the gospel to his audience. Church, we can be honest and admit, I think, because I know myself and you know you, we need to grow in this area, don't we? To pray more faithfully for us to grow in our understanding of Christ, but also the goal of this passage is for us to pray for open doors to evangelism, to step out in faith and to share the love of Christ. So first, for our church to be more serious about taking the message to the outsiders, we must consider the way we pray, but second, we must consider the way we live Consider the way you live, verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsider, making the most of the opportunity. First pray, then live. Pray, live. And he tells them, listen, brothers and sisters, live wisely. Live wisely. What does that mean? 
What does it mean to live wisely, to be wise, to make sure the life you live matches the gospel you believe? So when he says in verse five, conduct yourselves with wisdom, he says, church, make sure the life that you live matches the gospel you believe. We all know, right? Wisdom is application of knowledge. It's not enough just to know a wise person. He takes what he knows and he reduces it to action, practical living. That's why Paul prays. We already read in Colossians 1, 9, and 10, right? For this reason, since I heard of it, we have not ceased to pray and ask that you may not only know, but this knowledge would be reduced to practice, practice that is honoring to Christ so that you, he says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner that is worthy to please him and then to bear fruit. You pray to this end, Paul says, as you grow in the knowledge of his will for you, that you would demonstrate wisdom by walking in a manner that is worthy of the gospel you proclaim. Walk that is worthy. What specifically does Paul have in mind when he instructs the church to walk in wisdom? Well, I think if you just look at the context, everything that he has written up to this point. In other words, you can go back and re-listen to the last six sermons on Colossians chapter 3. Verse 5 of chapter 3, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality and passion, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. But now you also, verse 8, put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. How you deal with sin demonstrates your wisdom. Uh, How you treat each other here in the church demonstrates whether or not you're wise, verse 12. So as those who have been chosen, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility. This right here demonstrates whether or not we are wise. Wives, your wisdom is demonstrated in humble submission and, and husbands, you demonstrate that you're wise by sacrificially loving your wives, children, parents, slaves, masters. Do our lives match the gospel we confess? Verse five, conduct yourselves with wisdom. Now you might be asking, why does it matter? Why, why, why does it matter? The reason we must walk wisely is because the world is watching. He says here, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. The reason why this matters, the reason why our walk, our gospel walk matters is because of the outsiders, those who are outside of the church, the outside world. Here's the point. When we don't do in practice what we profess to believe in theory, in other words, if our theology does not result in godly practice, the outsiders see the inconsistencies in our walk and they slander our Lord. If we continue to live with the nature of the old self while professing to walk in the newness of life or greatly lagging behind in loving our wives while confessing to know Christ who gave himself up for his bride, what kind of message are we sending to the outsiders? So here's the question to consider. Do we love each other and the spread of the gospel enough to control our anger? 
Do we love each other and the spread of the gospel enough to control our passion, evil desires, or to be patient and kind to one another and to forgive each other? You see, when we consider our walk, our Christian walk from this angle, our sin is not just a private matter. It's not just between me and God. It affects not only brothers and sisters here in this room, but it affects the spread of the gospel. The world is watching. And if you've been watching news and just tallying up perhaps how many pastors alone this year have been disqualified from ministry because they failed to guard their hearts and to deal with sin. And as a result, they brought great shame to the name of Christ and definitely impeded the spread of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, as we consider our outreach, we got to consider the way we live. Consider what kind of message you as an individual or we as a church have been sending to those around us. It says here in verse five, conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders. Who are these outsiders? Sometimes we think about outsiders as, as those who openly hate Christ and, and Christians, those who murder babies, those who advocate for gross immorality and the like. And we say, oh, yeah, those are outsiders. You know, these outsiders are in our homes. And they watch us and they imitate us. There are children, perhaps an unbelieving spouse. These outsiders, they live next door to us. They hear us talk. They watch us closely. They observe how we play outside and what we talk about. They are closer to us than we realize, brothers and sisters. How we treat one another matters, church. People are always watching. And if our church is burning to see sinners come to Christ, we will be serious about living lives that are consistent with the gospel. And this is why Paul says, consider how you live. Live wisely. And second, he says, live purposefully. Live purposefully. He says, making the most of the opportunity. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, not to think of this great calling of living like Christ as a burden. It is not a burden. It is an opportunity. He says, make the most of the opportunity. The high calling to act like Christ, to be compassionate, to be kind, to be gentle with one another, to do away with greed, with immorality, with passion, with anger and wrath, this high calling is an opportunity to not only demonstrate that we're children of God, but an opportunity to bring Christ to others. We've been rescued, adopted, given this inheritance we've never imagined. We are loved by God, and now we have an opportunity to live in such a way as to point to our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, time is short, Paul says. Opportunities are limited. Make the most of it. He says this word making the most, it's like buying back the time, redeeming the time. Own every opportunity. Make use of it while you have it. And so the question is, how do we spend our time? Are we living purposefully to see the gospel spread wherever we are? 
look, the point that Paul, I think, communicates is not that we should just drop everything and, I don't know, go to downtown and start preaching the gospel. No, the goal is for us to live wisely in places where God has us. Mothers, fathers, parents, children, church members, in our work, wherever it is. And redeem every opportunity you have for the gospel. I mean, you got to realize that life is not constant. Things change. They changes take place. Your neighbors will not always be there with you. They will move. Your coworker will find another job. Your kids will not, not always be enrolled in that sports activity. Your opportunities, your opportunities to preach the gospel where you are right now, they will change. And Paul says, buy up every opportunity for the gospel. Do it. Pray. Redeem every opportunity. Make use of the time you are given. Beloved, if we're going to take the message of Christ to the outsiders, we need to consider how we pray. Pray for gospel opportunities and clarity. We need to consider how we live, live wisely and purposefully. And finally, verse six, we need to consider the way we speak. He says, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. You know, it's very common to hear Christians say this. I don't have gift of evangelism. I'm not good at talking to people. So what I'll do is I'll just confess Lord and I'll just live before the people. And if that's your approach, brother or sister, you're going to have to live a Christian life better, better than Jesus did and better than Paul did. So try. Because you know what happened with Jesus and Paul? They not only lived this kind of life, they always spoke. They always spoke. We must pray hard and live wisely, but we must speak because the gospel message is designed to be spoken. How, Paul asked, will they hear and believe in Romans 10 without a preacher, without a spokesman? Steve Lawson says, it is a blessing of God that he has not muted us, nor has muzzled us, nor has prevented us for speaking from him. We are God's spokesmen. And so Paul says, when you speak, you speak graciously. Remember the context here is sharing the gospel. It's evangelism. It's taking message to the outsiders. This is the verse that often gets like general application. But what does he mean here? Gracious words. It's the way we speak and deliver the gospel because our delivery of the gospel makes a difference. And Paul says it needs to be with grace. It needs to be tender, grace-centered, pardon-centered. Remember this church, our goal in delivering the gospel message to someone is not to win an argument, it's to win that soul. And Paul says you, when you preach, when you practice, when you speak, do it with grace. Because consider this, the gospel to us, before we believed, it was very offensive. It's the same. It causes the same offense to unbelievers. You telling people that they're sinners, and unless they repent, they're going to hell. Nobody likes that message. And if you add your own offense to it in the way that you deliver it, you're only going to do harm and not good. And that's why Paul says, don't only speak graciously, but also speak winsomely. As though seasoned with salt. Like, add flavor to this conversation. Love what Proverbs 15 verse 2 says, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. The very famous verse 
to defend our faith. First Peter 3, 5, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with what? Gentleness and reverence. I'm sure you've seen gospel presentations before where they use the gospel to communicate hate and judgment rather than God's love and pardon and mercy. And unfortunately, some use the gospel to inflict harm. What Paul is saying is you speak truth and love like he wrote to Ephesians chapter four, verse five, so that you will know how to answer. It's not simply a matter of knowing your apologetics or, or having the Bible down equipped with like Romans wrote or something like that, right? Or some other method to refute unbelief. The goal is to be ready to share the love of Christ in the best way you know how. And get this, if you live wisely, you will have opportunities. Because look what he says here. So that you will know how you should answer, how you should respond. So therefore your response is a response to an inquiry. Someone is asking you. Someone is wondering why you as a wife live differently than another wife or you as a husband or you as children or parents or, or why you huddle together here in this holy communion and this holy fellowship and your relationships with one another are differently are different than the unbelievers. And in very simple terms, you bring Christ to that inquirer with love. So if we're going to see the gospel spread to the world, if we're going to see the gospel spread in our neighborhoods, in our homes, then we need to consider how we pray, we need to consider how we live, and we need to consider how we speak. Are we willing to pray, brothers and sisters, for open doors in order to take the gospel message to outsiders? Are we, living, are we willing to live like Christ so others can see the power of the gospel? Are we willing to speak graciously when God gives opportunities in order to win people for Christ? Church, the message we all hold near and dear, the gospel must go forth. And for the past 2,000 years, the church has partnered with Paul in the spread of the gospel. And Grace Hill, our church, we must follow suit. And by God's grace, we will stand in the long line of saints who have trusted in Christ and have made his name known. Consider how you pray. Consider how you live. Consider how you speak. Father, we thank you. Confirm this words, these words in our hearts and fire us up to bring Jesus to others, beginning with our families and those who are closest to us. We pray as we plan even our own outreach strategies here at Grace Hill, we pray that you would open up doors and you would give us opportunities to see, the, open up our eyes that we may seize these opportunities not let them slip away and therefore bring Christ much glory and make his name famous here in Sacramento. We praise you, Father. Amen.